This is an ABC podcast. I am Rob Cross, and one of my favorite nonfiction books right now is called Successful Aging. And that's kind of around the neuroscience and the importance, certainly, of things that we think about around um, exercise, but also the criticality of the connections, right? So social side of people that are just happier as they uh, progress in life in different ways. Hi, this is Patricia Carvellis, and my favourite non-fiction book is Matt Haig's The Comfort Book. It is the sort of book that you can pick up at any time, especially if you're feeling any despair or darkness, and we certainly did that in 2021. It's beautifully written, it is compelling, and it is really like a language hug, a word hug from a man who is gifted at connecting with other humans. It is a beautiful book, The Comfort Book. Hi, I'm John Levy, and my favourite non-fiction book is Never Split the Difference. It tells the story of how Chris Voss, an FBI negotiator, learned the tactics and techniques necessary to become a master negotiator. The fact is, no matter what I do in my work from day to day, it always seems that I need to figure out how to make sure that I'm interacting in a positive way with people as I negotiate and figure out contracts and agreements. And uh, Chris's techniques are absolutely brilliant and have been actually tested through his years of being a hostage negotiator at the FBI. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. Welcome to This Working Life. And I'm sure you've guessed it by now. Yes, we're starting the new year with a discussion about nonfiction books to help us kickstart the 2022 working life. Now, apparently, life's too short to read anything but nonfiction. I'm not sure who came up with that catchphrase, but that's what we'll be exploring with our first guest, Panio Giannopoulos, who's the co creator of the nonfiction book club, The Next Big Idea. Now, Panio, is life too short to read anything else? <laughs> I like to read all genres, actually. Well, just about. There's a, like horror I'm not into, but but I love fiction. I love nonfiction. Tell us the story behind the next big idea club, Panio. Sure. Well, you know, we originated a few years ago as a pretty classic book club where we mail people two books every season, two of those are best nonfiction books that we thought, and they were curated and still are curated by uh, some wonderful writers, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Dan Pink. And so they would sort of pick books that they thought were particularly exciting, and they would try to kind of have them be by new authors or first books, you know, people that maybe you hadn't heard of. And we still do this, but we've also expanded into kind of a book discovery platform. We have an app now, and we have uh, audio summaries of books of all sort of the best nonfiction coming out. And one thing we're starting to do, which is pretty exciting, and, and it's very early days, so maybe I shouldn't even talk about it, but we're starting to create original shorter format audiobooks with writers. Because one thing we've learned over the past few years through looking at data and all that is that the average person reads about 18 to 20% of a nonfiction book. Oh. This is based on, yeah, I know, based on Kindle and Audible data. Which 18% do they read? <laughs> I think they probably read the first 15% and then they jump to the end. So we thought, let's experiment with some shorter format uh, approaches to books. So that's one thing we'll be trying as we go forward. Now, you've got some big names curating your club. I've got to ask you, mm -hmm. how did you secure these people? We threatened them. No, we <laughs> were, uh, you know, we, we've been working with them um, 
specifically with Adam Grant and Susan and Dan, and then Malcolm came in later. We'd sort of been working with them because they were thought leaders in this, you know, nonfiction space. It's funny. It's a very classic model, right? You know, book of the month. It's been around for decades, but it's different now because you can actually interact with an author in a way that you couldn't when you just got books mailed to you 30 years ago. And what do you think each of them brings to the book club then? Our curators? Well, they... First of all, I mean, they're the ones who actually choose the books and they will, they're very good at discovering books that I'd never heard of or, or authors that are kind of up and coming. And it's funny, I know you've got Katie Milkman coming on later. I remember asking Adam Grant, no joke, four and a half years ago, who are some good up and coming authors or, you know, social scientists I should approach? Maybe they'd be interested in joining this, you know, author network. And he said, oh, you should, you should reach out to Katie Milkman. And I hadn't heard of her yet. She hadn't written the book yet. And I still remember that because then years later, when he recommended her book, I was like, all right, Adam flagged this four and a half years ago. So they're really great at pretty much a talent spotting. Now, you're an author yourself. What type of Mm -hmm. books do you write and what are you writing right now? Uh, I'm a fiction writer primarily. I'll write the occasional essay. Oh, hang on. Now, you're deeply involved with the nonfiction book club and you're revealing right now that you write fiction books. Tell me about this discrepancy, Panio. Well, uh, you know, I've always loved fiction. It's funny, I didn't really get into nonfiction until I was a book editor, until I became a book editor in my 20s. And that's when I was introduced to the very vibrant world of nonfiction. You know, fiction readers are very snobby when you start out because you read, you know, you read your Hemingway or you read your Virginia Woolf and you think that's all that literature is. And so I had to kind of make my way into appreciating nonfiction. And now 90% of what I read is nonfiction. What are you writing right now? I'm finishing a draft of a big, big Greek-American novel. It's kind of like the Greek-American corrections. That's my blurb. (laughs) And how's it going? (laughs) Well, from a writing perspective, I've learned some interesting sort of micro-writing techniques because, as you can imagine, I'm pretty busy with all the nonfiction. So how do I fit in writing a book? Because I also have three kids. You know, we all have busy lives. And so I've really... I sort of had to adapt my strategy of writing. Originally, I did this sort of micro writing uh, during my commute where I would take a train into work every morning, a 40 minute train ride, and I would just turn off all my devices, you know, no Wi Fi, nothing. And I would just work on my book for 40 minutes every morning. And I made pretty good progress. And then COVID hit, and then don't go into work anymore. I work remotely. So what do I do? So now uh, that didn't work anymore. I found myself easily distracted by all the things at home that can, you know, I'm going to do some laundry. I'm going to, pet the dog or take the dog for a walk, watch the kid, you know, all the things you can do, which are sort of, they're procrastination, but you feel okay about them because you're helping your family. So I thought, how do I do it? And I adopted a video game technique. Oh, okay. Share. What is this technique? All right. So I was revising my book and I, I kept thinking, how come every time I want to work on my book, say on a weekend, I'd much rather sit down and play PlayStation 4? <laughs> what is it about it? And so, I mean, there's the obvious difference of, you know, it's fun to run around, you know, jump on cliffs and, and do backflips and do all sorts of things in a game. But really, most games I'm attracted to have a progress bar. There's a percentage that goes up every time you play. So you solve more of the game. You start at 22%. Now I'm at 24%, et cetera. So I printed out, found this online, just a one through 100% little 10 by 10 square grid. And I taped it to the top of my laptop. And every time I worked on my book, I would check off 1%. So 1%, 2%, 3%. And as it climbed, I have to say, it did motivate me to keep going. So I found it, I don't know how much it increased my productivity, but I'm at 37% and it feels pretty good. 
That's writer and co-creator of the Next Big Ideas non-fiction book club, Panio Giannopoulos. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong. For a writer, having a best-selling book would have to be the pinnacle of success and to have it recommended among the top 10 reads of the year, I would imagine it would be up there in terms of achievement. That's the case for our next guest, Professor Katie Milkman. She's a behavioural scientist and author of How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. So, Katie, are you where you want to be? (laughs) Yes, I am, actually. Funny you should ask. Now, you've devoted your career to behavioural change and the science behind it. Why? There are so many answers to that question, but I think the best answer is that about a decade ago, I wandered over to the medical school at the university where I work, and I saw a presentation there that changed my life and focused me on this topic. There was a graph. It's a very nerdy thing to have change your life, but it was a pie graph and it broke down the causes of premature death in the U.S. into categories. So things like accidents, genetics, environmental hazards, and decisions we make that we could change. And what blew my mind is that the largest wedge in that pie chart, 40% of premature deaths are due to decisions we make that we could change about what we eat, whether or not we smoke, whether we're physically active, whether we buckle our seat belts when we get into vehicles. I just could not believe how much that added up. And I'd already been casually studying this topic of behavior change and thinking about how we could apply science to improve people's health decision-making, their decisions about their savings and their education, but learning what a huge impact this work could really have to save lives, that got me laser-focused on this topic. Now, there's a lot of research and writing around change, like BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits, James Clear's Atomic Habits. What did your research find? Where did it take you? I think there's a big focus on habit, this idea that we can automate our decisions and um, create uh, mindless loops that help us achieve all of our goals. Mm. I think that's awesome when we can make it happen, but there are many other barriers to change that need to be solved with different tools from science besides habit. For example, if you are uh, struggling to motivate yourself to exercise regularly, you might ask, is it because I don't really believe I can get fit? And so that might be a motivational barrier, but it might also be um, you just don't have the confidence to begin and Mm. then you might want to take a certain approach. Or is it that you find it miserable when you're actually (laughs) working out uh, and then you need to change the nature of the activity and try to create a way to make it uh, enjoyable so you won't put it off and, and avoid it? If you're not taking your medications, is it because you keep forgetting and then you might need reminders? Is it because you don't believe the medication is going to work? Is it because there are nasty side effects? So it's not actually really rocket science to do the diagnosis. And and the way I've broken down my book is into the categories of the most common barriers to change, which you can pretty readily recognize in yourself once you are familiar with them. And then you can start thinking, okay, what are the scientific tools? What what does the research say? And, And that's what I've tried to package for readers. New Year's resolutions, they seem to be in and then out of vogue, but your research shows that attaching a date to a fresh start does indeed make a difference. Can you go deeper into that for us, Katie? 
Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. And what I think is so fascinating about it, we're talking about books here. And part of the reason that fresh starts are so motivating to us is actually that we think about our lives as if we are characters in a book and as if we're living through different chapters. And we sort of organize time that way. So if you think back over your life, you might think about maybe the, the college years, the, the university years, the years in your first job, the years living in Melbourne or Sydney, you, you sort of organize into those buckets, those chapters. And whenever you feel like you have a chapter break in your life, it gives you the sense of a fresh start and a clean slate. And you feel, you know, I've turned the page on that. And so you can say, well, yeah, okay, last year, that was another chapter in my life. The old me didn't quit smoking, but that was the old me and the new me can do it. And you feel this dissociation, it gives you this renewed sense of optimism. You're also more likely to step back and think big picture. And we have found in study after study, both that people just naturally do this, that there are moments like New Year's, even the start of a new week or the celebration of a birthday or a move to a new community that spur people to pursue change that they wouldn't have otherwise, it seems. I know that sometimes you get this question a lot, but when New Year's resolutions fail, what is the issue there and how might we get over that? Great question. Yes, so many New Year's resolutions fail, but it's not something special about New Year's. It's the case of our goals in general. When we set a goal, especially a goal to change, especially a goal that stretches us, um, the normal outcome is that we don't succeed. Those are the facts. And so it's really important to think about what are the going to be the obstacles? Can you map out what are the likely challenges you'll face on your path to achieving whatever goal it is you've set out to achieve? And then try to use some science-based techniques to actually help you. I'll give you an example of one that I think comes in handy for most of us on most goals. A particularly universal problem is that we don't find it enjoyable in the moment to do what's good for us, right? Eating pizza in the moment is more pleasant than eating salad, even though in the long run, you'll be better off if you eat salad over and over. Uh, spending your paycheck the minute you get it is more fun than setting some of it aside for retirement, even though you'll be better off in the long run. And because fun doesn't tend to be aligned with our long run goals, and because we tend to overvalue the instant gratification <laughs> we get from our actions relative to the long term rewards, we often don't do what's good for us. So once you recognize that that tendency to be impulsive to overweight the present is a barrier to lots of the kinds of change we wanna make from exercising more to saving more to being more productive on a book project, you can actually do something about it. So one tactic I've written about is something I call temptation bundling, which is actually trying to make what would normally feel like a chore more enjoyable in the moment by linking it with a source of pleasure. So you could imagine only letting yourself binge watch your favorite TV show while you're at the gym and now all of a sudden, start looking forward to those workouts, they're going to be a source of joy rather than displeasure because of the, you know, time's going to fly while you're watching your favorite show, you're going to be craving trips to the gym to find out what happens next, and you won't waste as much time at home binge watching that show in the bargain. And you can do this with all sorts of goals, whether it's making studying more fun by doing it in a different environment with snacks you love, or doing your household chores while listening to favorite podcasts or opening a favorite bottle of wine only when you are cooking a fresh meal for your family. We can use these tools to make it easier to achieve our goals. And I like that you labeled this whole area of research, the spoonful of sugar finding. 
<laughs> yes, I think it's very related to Mary Poppins' uh, timeless wisdom that a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And we, we sort of understand that. I have a five-year-old, and when I'm interacting with him, right, I would never say, like, just push through and do your reading, and, you know, it'll be good for you in the long run and expect to get a good outcome, uh, right? Or, like, eat your green vegetables because you'll grow up and be healthy. That just doesn't work with kids. They don't have that logic. We know we need to make the green vegetables tasty and enjoyable and that we need to convince them that practicing music or, or reading a book is a source of pleasure or a game, but we don't think the same way about ourselves. And it turns out we're not that different from kids. We have the same basic wiring. Yes, their prefrontal cortex is a little less developed and they have a little less self-control, but it's not that big of a difference. We still struggle with the same issues as adults and yet we don't think enough about how do we make it more enjoyable in the moment. We expect to be able to just push through, and that's a mistake. Katie, what did you think about Panio's idea of gamifying the writing of his book? You know, I loved it. It made me think of another book. I know the uh, Next Big Idea Club has actually put on its sort of list of winter reading called Get It Done by Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago, who is a psychologist and world expert on goal pursuit, and actually one of the people who's studied the importance of making goals more fun and that we make a mistake and think we can just push through. But she's also done a lot of work on goal progress and how where, you know, tracking progress and where you are in your journey can be motivating or demotivating, depending on the context. So it's a little bit of a tricky needle to thread. We are often very motivated when we see progress early on in um, pursuing a goal and when we're very close to the finish line, because then we can see the finish. Oh, it's so close. In the middle, though, there can be demotivation. So he, I noticed Panio said he's 37% of the way, and that sent off a little alarm bell for me about how well the tracking is going to work. So <laughs> I recommend everyone read the book. Ayelet has some great tips about how do you deal with that fatigue that sets in in the middle. I think that's the only danger of tracking. But in general, there's lots of research suggesting when you are tracking progress, it draws your attention to your performance, makes it more likely that you are going to focus on that goal, which could, of course, crowd out others. But it's generally a good thing if this is your top priority to be tracking exactly how you're doing. Now, you talk about this idea of treating change as a chronic problem and building a routine around it with rewards. Can you talk through this for us? Yeah, this is actually, you know, so many things in my career have been, there have been aha moments and, and you know, going from not really getting something to like, oh, wow, how, how did I not see this? <laughs> and this um, insight came about the importance of thinking about change more as a chronic challenge than a temporary one. It came from doing some research actually where I was hoping to find some new innovative ways to form habits. Like everyone else, I've sort of drunk the habit Kool-Aid and do, you know, if we can put things on autopilot, that really is amazing. And there's some evidence that there are situations when it can be done, but we'd done this large experiment and had tried to develop new techniques for creating habits. We put people through about four weeks of programs to help them form exercise habits. And most of the behavior change we saw during those four weeks, we saw a lot of change, but most of it disappeared, dissipated mm. after the program ended. And it was so frustrating. <laughs> and I was so frustrated. I talked to a medical doctor friend um, who was also a brilliant behavioral scientist. And I was telling him about my frustration. And he said, you know, Katie, I don't really understand why it is that when behavioral scientists are approaching this problem of behavior change, they expect it to be like a quick fix. 
you know, when we diagnose a patient with diabetes, we don't put them on insulin for a month and then take them off and expect them to be cured. We treat it as a chronic condition. We recognize that the issues that they're facing, they're going to be with them permanently. And so we need to treat it continuously throughout their lives, not temporarily. So why would you think behavior change would be any different? And that was my aha moment. It was like, oh, mm. and, and if you look at all the research, that's absolutely consistent with what it shows when we find tools that are helpful to people, when, whether it's gamification or temptation bundling or tracking performance or comparing people with you know, their neighbors on, in terms of their energy efficiency to motivate them to compete and be more efficient themselves. We see that these programs can have long-term success, but when we remove them, things fall away to some degree. You know, there's a little sustained change, but things get worse when you take away those support structures. So then the question becomes, if we can develop cheap solutions, if we can come up with good tactics to help people, teaching them about temptation bundling, sending them a mailing once a month to tell them how they compare to their neighbors, giving them a, a tracking device for their step count or their writing progress. Why do we need to take them away? Why can't we try to create structures that stay with people to help them achieve lasting change. So that's, that's kind of where I landed on this. You're listening to This Working Life and the discussion is all about non-fiction books and their ability to be agents of change. Panio, what has emerged for you listening to Katie? <laughs> uh, that was fascinating. You know, I'd, I'd read her book, of course, and I struggle with change, I think, just like everyone with habits. And I find it reassuring the idea that, you know, you're not expected to change forever, right? It's a constant progress. It's a constant process, I should say. So you use one technique for a while, and maybe that falls away. And so you use temptation bundling, maybe that falls away. And so I find it reassuring because it's very tempting to just give up. You start with something and then it doesn't work out and you think, oh, I'm hopeless. Forget it. It becomes an identity thing. But, you know, maybe you just haven't found the right technique at that time. So listening to Katie assess the way that you've been incentivizing yourself to write oh. your book, what do you think about that well, too? Okay. So specifically for that, I was aware of that because there's a thing that I call the saggy middle phenomenon, <laughs> which is when you're writing a book you get to the middle, everything just kind of sags, your motivation. And you can, as a reader, sometimes you read a book, and you're like, God, this is really getting slow. Like it, it's hard in the middle. And so mm -hmm. because of that, I actually have a built-in solution for that, which is I allow myself to accelerate the speed of progress. I can give myself 2% later on if I feel like I've, I've earned it. So I'm building in an acceleration. What do you mean by building in an acceleration? Well, because plotting out how I was going to do my revisions, right. I knew that I was starting kind of with the hardest chapters. And then I knew in the middle, there were a whole bunch of chapters that didn't really need much work. And I was going to be able to blow through those. So as my motivation would be waning, anticipating it, I'm going to work on the easy stuff. And then I'm going to save that last rally of energy for the hard chapter in the epilogue. Oh, I love that. And I feel like Ayala would love that as well. So it's, you know, very strategic engineering the path so that the tough stuff is at the moments when research shows we have the most motivation, the beginning and the end. And then, yeah, the saggy middle, giving yourself the easy stuff, the fluff in the saggy middle. <laughs> so, by the way, I'm going to be really, sa really sad if my legacy is for... that term. <laughs> There's going to be a book the called saggy The Saggy middle. middle coming out soon. I would read that. And a t-shirt. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, you Nothing. know where the arrow's pointing in my T-shirt, too. <laughs> and that's Professor Katie Milkman and Panio Giannopoulos. Christine Porath, and favorite nonfiction book is The Rhythm of Life. So it's about living every day with passion and purpose. It's by an Australian author, Matthew Kelly. It's really about becoming your best self and bringing that into your everyday interactions with people. Hi, I'm Hilary Harper, and my favorite nonfiction book is called Brain Rules for Work. It's by a neuroscientist called Dr. John Medina, and it was a fascinating look at how we go when we're forced to do meetings online and try and adapt to new technologies at work. Apparently, we just don't like seeing a big head in front of us. Humans don't get to see that very often. It was really interesting working out why it's so tiring being on a meeting with lots of big heads. Highly recommend it. My name is Dan Shaw Bell, and the book I recommend is Now Discover Your Strengths by Marcus Buckingham. It's about figuring out what your strengths are and really doubling down on that and paying a little bit less attention to your weaknesses because you're going to grow the most when it comes to your strengths. You've been listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong. Happy New Year. And until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.